Facebook. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? Hey, it's good. It's good. Give me one second, all right? No rush. That was just in the middle of Welcome back to the Phillips Center podcast where we talk about inner city church planting in New England. We're glad you're with us today because a little while ago we got to talk with a church planter in urban core community in New Haven, Connecticut. And we just had a fantastic conversation. He is living the Phillips Center dream. He's pastoring a gospel-centered church in one of New England's really poor or hard or, as he likes to call them, uncool places. And he is loving it, and his vision and his enthusiasm are contagious. He had a lot to share with us, and we learned a lot from him about his work, his context, his philosophy. And we're excited to share it with you so that you can enrich your thinking about church planting, whether you're someone cheering on these kinds of efforts uh, or maybe considering doing it yourself. We kept saying throughout our time that we hope he writes a book someday, but until it's out, just stick with us and keep coming back because we're actually hoping to do some more podcasts together in the future. Today, our guest is Chip Anderson. He's the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in the Hill in New Haven, Connecticut, and the interviewer is Tim Zalker, the director here at the Phillips Center, and they're going to be talking about the community that Chip's working in, how he himself became a pastor there, different ways of looking at power and empowerment in poor communities, and how suburban churches can partner with these inner city churches and church plant efforts. Chip, tell us about um, the Hill section of New Haven and your church on the Hill. Well, the Hill section or community, uh, sometimes we say neighborhood, but it's a community of many neighborhoods, um, is a section of uh, New Haven that has a little bit of history. I'm going to give just a little bit. Um, Back long, many centuries ago, uh, they moved out the immigrants and the indigent, the poor, into its own community from the hub of New Haven itself, where mostly the wealthy and uh, uh, the, the families that had some power. We use the term power. I'm not sure what they would have used back then. Um, uh, and they moved them more or less by creating a suburb in the Trowbridge Square area of New Haven, which is what actually where my apartment is. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's bigger than Trowbridge Square, but um, this is where the hub was because the trolley system ran out of here. And um, there's a slight, it, there's no real hills in New Haven except for one. Hmm. And that is to get up to the Trowbridge Square area. Just, you got to remember horse and buggy walking hill. Not, not a hill like, you know, I'm climbing a hill. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so people would say, I'm going up to the hill. I'm going up to catch the trolley up the hill eventually it became known as the hill and and that just how the hill section came the the community has always been uh, on the poorer side of the population in the haven uh, the population that's now is about 43 percent unemployment rate that gives you an indication of the type of uh, families that live here um, about 80 to 85 percent this is, again, my sort of guesstimation, but it's not too far off, I'm sure. Um, I kind of did this for a business for a while. Um, 85, uh, 80 to 85% is in some form of uh, subsidized housing. Uh, the 
population um, of parolees in New Haven, 70% live in the Hill. I've gotten that from the parole uh, 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 department. So that, that's, I think, a pretty rel- uh, good, good figure, about 70%. Um, there is food scarcity, even though there's plenty of places to find food. It's, ju- it's just that you're asking people who have a hard time providing food to choose between childcare working, uh, can't stand in lines if you're trying to do a part-time job. It's very difficult. Um, so food scarcity is more a social issue than a proximity issue. And um, uh, we're, we're trying to address that a little bit. Um, and then, uh, of course, you have uh, just the, 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 the poor and the very low income, very few middle class, if there are any many class. I'm, I'm not, people tell me there's middle class here. I haven't found them, but um, they, they probably exist. Uh, home ownership is low. A lot of renting, obviously subsidized uh, rent. Um, and that's really a picture of the hill. It's about um, 51% Hispanic, various places Hispanic, um, and about 38% black. And then all the rest is made up of longtime immigrants that have been here from Poland and uh, myself, you know, whites. Um, and that's really a picture of the hill. It's an interesting and this past summer um, because we did the park barbecue ministry where we uh, see a population come to a park and eat with us um, almost everybody was new and I had forgotten that in a community like this every two years you're gonna have a change of population and um, so that's also very transient too. a lot of homeless what about from one generation to the other then not a lot of families have been there for yeah, actually, um, it is incredible to find families that have been here since the 40s, 50s, 60s, both um, uh, black and white, or I should say European, um, uh, f- because their families were immigrants. The, uh, there was no jobs in the South, so a lot of blacks came up north. Um, some have stayed here, and uh, for various reasons. I, to be honest with you, it still surprises me, but I'm not sure where they would go to find something better, better safer safer more like home i'm not sure where they would go so um so you do have but um again this is not a place of destination for those who have who um have good paying jobs and um good education this is not a place of destination and um uh the uh so what you do is this is the place people come come for hopefully somewhat cheaper rent um a community that understands them um this is a place where people go because they don't have to explain who they are. And um, so it's that type of neighborhood. Why are you there? Why, uh, what brought you there to pastor a church? And you mentioned earlier um, your other job, your pre- previous job. Um, tell us how you, how you got there. I'll, like, I'll, I'll, start, I'll start there. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. Start there. Yeah. Uh, the... Uh, uh, my previous uh, employment before I came back into the pastorate uh, was uh, about 20 years in the human services, nonprofit, I like to say social action vocation. Uh, I was a grant writer, planner, I, dev- I designed programs, 
Um, I managed budgets for nonprofits in terms of how to staff programs and to uh, get um, the outcomes we wanted for our program. So I, I'm used to the population. I'm used to it. Uh, trust me, when I got here, um, I wish I had this experience first because there were some things back then I would not have done because I thought I knew better. And uh, um, I hardly think the word woke is correct, but knocked in the head is not bad. Um, but um, I've gotten a good education, even though it was a, um, a population of people that I already understood because I had been, my job for 20 years was researching and researching and, and planning and doing strategic planning for just this type of neighborhood. And uh, so that's what I did. And a friend of mine who was the church planter, actually, of this particular church, um, uh, asked if I would come and preach for him. Um, I did not know that I was candidating at the time. Uh, he hadn't announced that he was moving on to a church in Atlanta. Um, he asked me the day after if he thought I would love to, if I would like to, to uh you know, take a shot at pastoring this group as an interim pastor. So I said, sure, you know, part-time, only 12 hours a week. I had my other jobs that I had to do. Um, and uh, so that's how I got here. Um, the congregation, after a while, um, learned to trust me and really wanted me to stay. And so our anchor church agreed to um, uh, or get me a, a, me seek ordination in the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, which is our denominational background. And um, then um, that took about a year process, and I was ordained in September of 2017 and then fully installed as the lead pastor of this particular church plant in PCA, Presbyterian Church in America language. This is a mission church, with our anchor church being also a New Haven church, but it's a rather uh, larger, a more affluent church, and we're their mission church. So we share their session, their elders. And uh, that's how I got here. Um, I was not expecting to stay. I was expecting to move down where there are palm trees and currently a hurricane. And, um, uh, but, um, it, there was no doubt that I was to be here and it was actually a little bit of a struggle to be here. It was a uh, struggle not because I didn't want to, but the process wasn't as smooth. I kept on having to say, God, if you want me here, you're going to really have to work this out. And, uh, so far he has, and, um, we, being a mission church, we have to raise our own funds. Um, and um, I've never, ever done that before, ever. Now, I was a grant writer, so I raised $14 million a year to run an agency, but it is not the same thing. It's harder to raise $44,000 for a small church plant in an uncool, you said hard place. I, I prefer the word uncool, uncool place and um, than it was to raise $14 million for uh, programs. Um, okay, I, 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 I want to interrupt you. You've just said something very significant. It's harder to raise forty-four thousand dollars a year for you in that setting that you're in than it is than it was for you in the nonprofit sector to raise fourteen million dollars a year. Why is this, Chip? Well, um, I can't turn to the state, the feds. Um, maybe on occasions for a certain project, I could turn to a local foundation. Um, that has at least sympathies to the church environment. Now, we're a very conservative church. PCA is 
a conservative conservative denomination. So there are barriers to outside funding. I have to appeal to people, individuals, and to churches that are not connected to this neighborhood. I would say pretty much 98% of the people who give to our ministry, um, and I've yet to raise my exact goal for the last three years. I came close last year. Um, uh, about 98% have no idea, don't live in this community, don't live in a community that's close to this. We only have a few churches that have uh, uh, signed on and become partners. Um, but really, churches can only do it for so long. So I really need those lifelong individuals who who uh, who, who see this as something that is just not going to go away in terms of us being self-sufficient. We're asking low-income people who have a hard enough time making their their rent and their bills and semi-homeless. Um, we're, we're asking uh, people who don't have discretionary dollars. Um, so that is really the issue. The issue is, is I'm asking, um, first for me personally, I'm asking a group of people that have never heard me say, give me money so I can be in ministry. They've never, ever said that. I, Get a job. Why don't you? Why doesn't the church pay you? Why doesn't the denomination pay you? They they don't have that concept. So that's that's on a personal level why it's difficult. But then it's on the fundraising level. I'm really asking churches in Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, some church in Connecticut to actually be partners with us. They don't know me denominationally. It's brand new for me to be here. So it's not like I grew up in the PCA and I go, yeah, we're going to support Chip. We've always known him. Uh, I changed his diapers. You know, I mean, th that didn't happen. And um, uh, and it is, it's an uncool place. And it doesn't fit any model that is currently part of the church growth. Scratch planting is hard enough in the suburbs. Scratch planting. You know this. Scratch planting in an uncool place like the hill is, and I'm going to quote, if I will, paraphrase uh, a couple of missionaries. I've had more than one missionary tell me that um, uh, uh, after spending some time with me here in the hill, that um, being in the hill, trying to plant and grow a church in the hill is, um, if not harder, as hard as any mission field. And um, that, that, that's another reason why it's just very hard to do this. We're not going to have self-sufficient uh, congregation. So there you go. Long explanation, something I need to write up, right? That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And this gets really, really at the core of what makes church planting among urban poor difficult. Yeah, it makes my hair stand up on end because you're, you're talking with passion about one of the key problems as to why uh, this entire population nationwide, certainly in New England, is not being reached. It's cross-cultural, and uh, these churches are not financially self-sustainable. Yeah. It's hard. Uh, you, you asked a, a, um, yeah, a question about living here in the neighborhood. I, I'd like to answer that. Yeah. Um, my wife and I knew that we were, once we made the decision to stay, that we'd be uh, parting from our home that we've had for 20 years in uh, in Bridgeport. Um, I'm not quite like a neighborhood like this, but in, uh, a low-income neighborhood. Um, but we knew we were going to move into the hill, and um, people kept on saying, oh, you know, can't wait for that, can't wait for that. Uh, so lo and behold, back in January, my wife and I found an apartment that we could afford 
um, here in the hill, uh, actually uh, not even a block from the Trowbridge Square Park that we do the barbecue. It's very, very cool. You've seen that. And uh, um, so I, I, we, moved, we moved in here, and all the people who expected us to move were still flabbergasted. I'm using my word because their faces did the work. They weren't just saying, you moved to the hill. I mean, they really had looks on their faces because pastors who pastor churches um, in communities like this do not typically live in the community. There are some that do, but uh, many do not. And some of the congregations that are in neighborhoods like this, they're here only because they found a building, not because they're part of the, the neighborhood. Now, they have some long-time uh, uh, what a storefront churches that have been around for for a long time um again but the pastors don't always live right here in the community so it's actually shocked people literally shocked people when i introduced people into um in our neighborhood on our street right here hi i'm pastor chip and they, they you know first white guy pastor uh two two clues that says something's up here and i said yeah i pastor a church on davenport it's right here in the hill and they went you live here I mean, literally, that was the rhetorical question that was being asked. And um, so, but I, the one reason why we, we live here is the reason. It's the only reason. It's because we need to be part of the very community that we minister in. And I personally think that it should be true of almost any church that is uh, in existence. The pastor should really live in that community. And that's a whole theological discussion about the larger churches megachurches, uh, those are, I call them neighborless, neighborhoodless uh, churches. So there is not a neighborhood for the pastor to live in. Uh, but here, you know, we're 80% of our congregation comes immediately from the, the, the neighborhood, very small, but still the neighborhood. And um, how am I going to reach people on this street? Just pretend I don't live here, but they're never going to leave the street. Death, overdoses, homelessness, um, they they get kicked out of the apartment for some reason, but for the most part, those are the only reasons they would move move away. But they don't literally leave this immediate neighborhood. How am I going to reach them? I can't even talk, convince them to come two and a half point uh, nine miles walkable to a church building in a technically different neighborhood in the hill. It's not going to happen. So I have to find something, and so we moved into. Jesus gave up everything and moved into uh, into into Nazareth, right? You know, into Bethlehem. And um, even though I don't feel the incarnation language is really fit for this, we believe in the ascension of ascension of Christ. That He's sitting at the right hand, and we're the body, and He's the head. I, I use that language, but I have to be incarnated into this community. And as God sent Jesus, so He sends us. So it's a model. Uh, you know, and it's a little different than uh, some of them, but not all of them. There's plenty of people who do this. I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's just a very special wheel because it's the hill. That's all. How far will your neighbors go then? You said, you know, I mean, you're throwing it out, point nine, but the, the question is here, don't we need more small neighborhood churches? Because we're not going to ask uh, families, men and women, in these neighborhoods to drive to church well two two things come come up in that um i do believe that we will get some to to come over to the to 
the what I call the worship site. I don't like calling it the church building. Um, we'll get some that will. People who have cars, people who are a little bit more stable, they're, they're, they're a little better. But I can't count them on the street. I have no idea. I think there might be one, you know, on the street that I live on. Um, becomes a problem because once they choose to get up, get dressed on a Sunday morning, wander over to a, to a building to have time with people who don't necessarily come and are living on their block, they are leaving their neighborhood to go to church someplace, just like all these people leave their neighborhoods to go to a mega church. Again, I should write on this, right? But um, that's exactly. So we're, we're going to try to do some things here. I've actually thought about having an outdoor church. Now, it can't be Sunday morning because I got my responsibilities, you know, my presbytery session approved responsibilities. And church for a Presbyterian isn't just gathering together. There are elements that have to be part of what happens in a meeting of a church. And how can I make that happen? I've thought about how to do that outside here, even in the wintertime. Isn't that crazy? Um, but, it, you know, uh, they meet in caves. Why can't they meet on the sidewalk, you know? And I, I'm telling you, if we had musicians, that would be a key. We would have a large group of people meet. You see how many people, uh, I'll give you a video later on, and you can choose to do whatever you want with it. I'll send it to you. Um, I just did our video of our park ministry, and um, on a tor- torrential downpour evening, I mean torrential, umbrellas. People see them were coming. They get their umbrellas. The rain is pouring down. We'll still have 60, 80 people, easy, on a bad night. On the, the the second to worst night, it, it rained temporarily, but really came down. It was our last night. We had easily 120 people. And, um, you know, if I could gather that many people to preach to, and as a Presbyterian, calling the elect from them to come and give their hearts to Jesus, you know, come on. Now, this is a no-brainer, but it's difficult. There's no funding for that. Hi. Could you help me to build a church on this street that meets, say, Friday night, Saturday morning? You know, all of a sudden you got theological issues, right? You know, and uh, forget about the social issues, you know. You mentioned the park, your park ministry. This is something we have in common with you guys uh, because we do something called Summer Off. And we've been doing it for 11 years in the inner city parks. What are you doing in the parks, and how did that play into the start of your church before you even got there? Very good. Let me start there. Um, before I came along, um, the Anchor Church, uh, Christ Presbyterian Church, um, that's on Whitney Avenue. We, we say CPC New Haven, just to give it identifier. It's a, too long a name to say anything else. Um, they really wanted to reach out to um, the unreached neighborhood of the hill, and they had someone on staff that... Um, could could play the church planter role. Uh, his wife also happened to be the phys ed teacher at a nearby Christian uh, high school, like a Christian um, uh, school. And uh, so that helped out a lot because they knew how to run. And I think he worked for athletes. I think he did something with athletes too before he was a church planter. So they put together um, a soccer camp, kind of they – an impact week of helping neighbors do things around their house and stuff like that, but also a soccer camp. 
And uh, some ladies didn't want to stop. Some moms said, we like this. And so he said, would you guys be interested in a Bible study? So they started a Bible study with these ladies, mostly, um, uh, uh, trying to get them and pick them up in the van to bring them over to the more white, affluent church. And that didn't quite, you know, it was hard. You know, it was tough. Come on, that's just reality. It's not just racism. It's just hard, you know. Sure. And um, I'm sure racism is in there too, but it is just difficult. And um, uh, so they, that the, this man, Tolliver Wills, started a Bible study that turned into a worship service and, and finally got a, a place to, to do that regularly on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. And that's where I came in. So that's how it got started. So long before I got here, this church was already geared to doing things outside in the community. Uh, this is very, very important. Someone asked me, another church planter who wants to plant a church in New Haven, asked me what I did for outreach, what our church does for outreach. And I, I you know, here I am giving them how to plant a church, not in my neighborhood, you know, <laughs> you know, but seriously, I don't care. Let a thousand church plants happen. You know, I mean, my goodness gracious, I could care less about that. But um, he asked me that question what things do you do for outreach? And I said, well, you know, I don't think we really have outreach programs. We live among the people on the hill. See, outreach, I know this is not video, but outreach seems to say I'm up here outreaching down here in this neighborhood. And there's a pejorative uh, parochial um, type of, uh, of view that outreach ha can have. And so we really see ourselves as being in the community. So we do things in the community. We have barbecues on the sidewalk. Um, we have uh, we get involved with community events. We always have tables in the community events. We do whatever we can to be involved. So much so, these the town people call us to help and be part of. Uh, this Saturday, we're going to be at the Hill Reunion, which is going to be a big event at one of the nearby school fields. Um, it will be an interesting morning because it's also the morning I start our breakfast, uh, my wife and I, on our sidewalk. But anyway, the, during the summer, uh, for eight uh, Wednesday nights, we roll a grill and, into a nearby park. In, in our case, it's literally nearby the apartment. Um, and uh, whoever's there, we feed hot dogs and hamburgers. Our congregation brings things to eat. Uh, we have salad, fruit. My wife makes a jello dish. Uh, that she calls and it's the only time I allow this to happen, Jesus Jello. Uh, I, I don't like that stuff, but let me tell you, this is probably the one thing people come for more than anything else besides a cheeseburger. And um, uh, we, we, we serve what we can. People sometimes bring stuff right off their tables and, and bring, and uh, so it's almost like a potluck and we'll serve um, on an average night, 65 people, and a good night, around 90, and then a humongous night, like 120, or last night. And um, I, I preach for a little bit before I uh, start. Um, I, I shout out, hot dogs and hamburgers are on, uh, come on over. People gather around. They know if they wait five, ten minutes, they can get in line, get a hot dog. don't have to listen to me preach. But men, women, children. They all come over and they listen. Now, the kids come over, so that means the parents are coming over. And uh, then I have a group which I entitle the unparented teenagers that are hanging around. Um, 
if anybody out there in the Reformed tradition is looking for a call to come help be a youth minister, come with your own funds, but we could use you. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, just dozens of teenagers, um, a ready-made group. I'm telling you, these people would do, these teenagers would do anything just to have something to do. Um, but anyway, so that's what we do, and it, it allows me to preach. And this year I kind of preached a little bit more directly about the forgiveness of sins and that we need this in our lives. But I made it, I made it so that they would understand um, that that it's not just because they're poor they need this, not just because they have issues of addiction. And um, I never say street prostitution out loud, um, but the adults know who I'm talking to. And those that are there know who I'm talking to, that what's going to meet their ultimate need is the forgiveness of the sin that dwells so deeply inside us. It's not just one sin that we're trying to conquer. It's it's our very nature that needs this. And uh, I, I, I think I focused on that. Um, I do a lot of interaction stuff with them when I preach. Um, this year is the, it was the first three Beatitudes. I, I said, blessed are the, and they would say, poor in spirit, for theirs is the, and they would say, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they would say, for they shall be, and they would shout back, comforted. And then the last one, blessed are those who are meek, they would shout, for they shall inherit the earth. And I said, isn't that a great thing? We're going to get the earth, you know? And uh, I had to tell them meek doesn't just mean uh, simply humble. It means that you don't have the resources to be strong and powerful or self-sufficient. Meek is standing right here. And I, I'm frank with them. It's standing in this group right here. And God promised, it's a promise that he has. We just have to receive it. And you receive that through Jesus Christ dying for your sins. Because you can't get any of this apart from what he does for you on the cross. And, and uh, you know, whether people get saved at the moment, I get a lot of raised hands. People aren't wandering over the church, you know. And I, I don't like assurance of faith on the spot. I think joining a church or being part of a church kind of is the fruit, if you will, of assurance of faith. But... Um, uh, you know, God, God has ways way beyond that moment, but I get to do that with 40 people, sometimes 60, you know, in front of me. And, uh, what preacher wouldn't want that, you know? Chip, I am so grateful for this conversation. You are, uh, like there is no celebrity world of un uncool inner city church planters, but this is really, really good. Well, let me tell you, um, I'm too old to do this for 40 years and then write a book because I will not be on the planet in 40 years. <laughs> um, I'm going to turn 70 in eight, less than eight and a half years. Um, this really is a young man's game. Because that, let me tell you, that is, um, I, I, my body has a hard time with this. Yeah. My body does. And uh, someone can say, well, Chip, you're just not in shape. Well, I've never been in shape. Um, this is this is a young man's game. And um, we, we need people who just don't care about climbing the ladders, writing the books, being known you got to see these uncool places because if you think about it, 
to address the issues of racism and disparity, it is not turning the hill into a flourishing suburb. Well, technically, it was a suburb, but it's not called that anymore. Um, uh, to, to say that that is the goal of justice advocacy is, is uh, kind of racist and kind of pejorative. Um, we, we, we need to let these people know to flourish where they're at because God is in their lives. And um, this, is, this is not an easy work uh, at all. Um, I'm, I'm convinced that God put me through 20 years of social action employment long before he had me here because at least I had a head for it before I got into this. And um, uh, that's not typical training for a young pastor thinking, I think I'll go plant a church. Um, I don't expect that I'm going to write a book about this. Um, I do enough writing on my blogs and insight and stuff. I I do that. Um, I'm certainly not going to be a celebrity. Really, I gave that up probably in my 30s, realizing God kept on saying, no, no, (laughs) and uh, um, thought I was going to be a Bible college president at one time. Um, I really did. I really thought that was going to be it, and that was not it, and then I thought I was going to be a a CEO of a um, large nonprofit. Nope, that wasn't it. I was going to be a pastor in an uncool place with some really great people that are going to so enjoy heaven far more than most. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, um, it's tough and it's, it is, it is a tough place, but it's not tough in the, in, in, in it. Don't read. I, I don't want people to think that I'm having a hard time being here. I love being here. I'm constantly thinking, what can we do to make this work? What can we do to, to help people? Um, you have a question about empowering. Can I kind of answer that one? Yes. Let's talk about power and empowerment because this comes up a lot, and I'd like to hear your take on it. I'd like to hear you discuss power and empowerment in light of the cross of Christ. Uh, we kind of throw around the term empowerment a lot. I'm not assuming that you're doing that, but that's just one of those catchphrases. It's like almost like a Hallmark card thing. If it says it on the front of the card, we're doing it. Turn the gas station into green colors, and all of a sudden they're green, just because we say the word. Um, the The idea that a church in a community like this has to ask the question, does the gospel have any effect on the neighborhood whatsoever? Um if we are waiting for someone to come along that has a measure of power to get converted so and grow in Christ so that they can make changes that would help neighborhoods like this, um, I do not think that's the biblical model. That is not, that's not what the Bible says. That is, that is, uh, uh, that is power speaking this, this language of empowerment. And, um, uh, but I do believe the gospel does spill over. If you live in a suburb, modern suburb, you don't think about flourishing your neighborhood because that's why you move to the suburbs. Because this is flourishing. This is the good life. All the lawns are in the back. All the pools are in the back. All the playgrounds are in the back. It has nothing to do with neighbors. It has to do with how we uh, live this good life that we have. And... Um, you know, Lord bless them. I, I 
I definitely need their affluence. I think the art of fundraising is helping people to give up their overabundance to places like ours. Um, but how do we turn? I certainly don't want the hill to become uh, Woodbridge, uh, Oxford. These are towns in, in New Haven. Um, I, I don't want them to all of a sudden just become because of people getting converted. All of a sudden now that's, you know, that suburban good life now becomes our good life. Um, I don't think that, but they could flourish in Christ in this neighborhood, which would make this neighborhood safer, would make a, a neighborhood like this more apt to attract business. What businesses want to come to this neighborhood? There's no businesses that want to come to this neighborhood because it's too dangerous, you know? Um, you know, to an outsider. To an insider, yes, it's dangerous, but it's livable. It's not, it's not as uh, front-page news-ish. Um, but uh, so what we try to do as a church is teach that um, just because we're not going to just give you something. We're going to empower you. That might take many forms. We give away plenty of food when we do our barbecues and stuff, but that's a totally different. This is we're not creating a business out of this. Um, we want to help people to find things that they can do. That long term, I'd like to see us helping people to start businesses, uh, homegrown businesses. Maybe buy a building where we can house a couple of businesses. Um, those are things that I would like to do. I actually am trained to do that after my twenty years outside of ministry. Um, but that's not just the empowerment we want for people. Something happened in the early church. You know what I'm talking about. It took gatherings of strangers and um, very unempowered people uh, to change. God changed something in the world. It, it's from all sociological point of views and all economic point of views and all that power point of views, it shouldn't have happened. It just shouldn't have happened. But something inherent about the gospel tells people that they have self-worth. God did something on their behalf when he didn't have to. Uh, we can get into theology. We can get into, you know, Reformed theology versus more Wesleyan type of stuff. But um, there is still something about the gospel that has an empowering effect. It is no wonder that women in the droves in the early church became the staple of almost every congregation because men were being disempowered. I like to say dis de deconstructed. I, I explained that to my church, and they go, oh, yeah, that's what men need, you know? And uh, so, you know, it's, it totally understands, it totally makes us understand how the early church could uh, let at the same table people who would have been uh, considered less than human, children less than human, at least not a full human in the Greek, uh, and, and in some sense a Jewish mind too. Um, yeah, there's some nuances of difference there, but they had categories of humanity, and they, and we have that today. And and something about the gospel should be empowering people to, to see that they have self worth no matter where they are. Something need something intrinsic, mysterious. We we're afraid of the mysterious in the Christian world. It has to have 
some kind of calculation, some kind of strategy that works, right? But something about the gospel is mysterious. Why a homeless person can now sort of stand straight up and say, I'm a child of God. And somehow that is empowering. And that would help, that just, on a natural level, that's going to give them life. It's going to give it life abundantly. It's going to put them in a community that that has their best interests in mind, not the mayor and the state senator and the governor and whoever's running for POTUS, um, but really a community made up of, of unequals and strangers all of a sudden. So we like it when people of affluent find us, um, but they're not there in my view because I now need to count on them for their income. Uh, I actually want to count on them to be part of the body, just to, just to say that the power and empowerment really are um, the church acting as church and seeing that happen. Um, and uh, um, uh, that uh, my preaching reflects that. I think that helps because I think about this all week. How does my text relate to the people? How do I show them that this is a long-term effect on their lives, not just a moment? We're not dealing just with a sin, but sin nature in our hearts and lives, in, in our community. How does the gospel play out? That's why almost everybody in our church shows up at these barbecues and, and stuff. It's because now they get, Pastor, we need a banner that says we're here. And I said, no, you're the banner. Go tell people we're here. Oh, we need a prayer, prayer booth. No, no, no. You, if someone says they need prayer, if you have to, you can bring them to me, but you can pray with them, you know? And uh, seeing that happen summer after summer has just been exciting. And they don't realize they're learning empowerment. This is, they're learning it. No one's giving it to them. They're learning it. And um, I am sure this affects how they search for jobs. I know this affects how they handle an interview. I know these things affect. And, uh, you know, this is all part of the nature of the gospel itself, not because we have a program that unleashes power. How do you take somebody from a sense of uh, uh, weakness in a human sense, like, okay, I know I'm in a weak, vulnerable position. Somebody, uh, you know, has grown up in a, in a setting where they know that they're weak. Then they hear God's word. They recognize that they are, in fact, valuable because they're made in the image of God. But then you've got to do more work to say, no, actually, your strength is in Christ. Uh, your, your, your strength is not your own. You have to then, in a sense, go another step and disempower them to help them realize, uh, oh, uh, yeah, actually, it's not me. I'm not swapping power structures with other people. Exactly. We're, yes, no. we're taking this off of ourselves altogether in uh, seeing it in Christ. Now, you, um, um, you would suspect that looking at the outward appearance and how people carry themselves that they are in weakness. Um, I'm going to spin this a little differently. That shouldn't shock you by now. Um, I actually believe everybody's attracted to strength because it gives them strength. Mm -hmm. Finding something, whether it be a, a program, a person, a group, a gang, a family, they draw strength, and so that becomes their strength. So they don't really see themselves as weak because that is not a good place to be. Um, it's why men watch football, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I don't watch football anymore. 
<laughs> I've repented. <laughs> um, but but seriously, um, there's a sense of um, that everyone's going to find that power, that strength, that to be strong. Even the most homeless person is going to find something, right? Um, from our vantage point, weak, uh, um, messy, um, life not lived, however you want to say it, um, but the poor will attach themselves to whatever power they can they can have. They'll trust in the government. They'll trust in a program. They'll trust in a strong leader. They'll trust in, I'm preaching through judges, and one of my spins on judges is that um, there will always be leaders. There will always. Uh, judges shows us that not all leaders actually are godly, mature leaders. They have self-interest. Almost every single one of the judges had self-interest. And um, I said, but this shows us that there will always be leadership and people will flock to leadership, flock to leadership, and it could be the wrong leadership. So let's go back to what it means to be deconstructed. I would think deconstructing those center, those epicenters of strength in their lives, whether it be drugs, the drug dealer, the, uh, the, the streetwalker uh, uh, who has some empowerment over her body. She has to learn to be deconstructed herself. Um, uh, moms that uh, say, okay, men don't want to be around. I'm going to be strong for my kids. So their kids are now their idols. Um, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be constructed because they have gained the wrong strength. They have desired the wrong strength. So it's not that I want to take them and say, I want to make you now in the gospel, in Christ, weak like you were. Right. I'm going to exchange your strength to be. Now, I'm going to take a very theological view on this, both Christ, the head and the body of Christ. You can't have one without the other. I do believe very strongly trusting in Christ means you are part of a body. And it has to be local for it to make sense. I also think it's a biblical model, but aside from that. Yeah. Um, so they, their strength now is another group of messed up, weak <laughs> uh, people. I don't care if a CEO of a major corporation says, I think I'm going to go to the Hill Church. They're going to come in and learn how to be weak, just like everybody else, because they're going to learn not to have the strength centers or the power that they've had. They're going to learn something different. And it is exchange of powers. Um, even though we, we, we like to say it's not, it, it, you know, the Christian isn't about power. It's about a power that is, that is not ours, that is something totally doesn't. It's not a power that makes us something. It's a power that conforms us to the image of Christ, which makes us vulnerable to suffering and to um, having uh, 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 weaknesses that we thought we might never, ever have. But anyway, so I, I would spin that a little differently, that, that the, the, the powerless find power to identify with, and that's what they need to be repenting of, that's what they need to be trusting in less, that, 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 whatever it is. And that takes a long time because our society has ingrained it into them, into populations like this, is that if they don't have X, they're done. And so it's not easily given up. 
CEO giving up his wealth, we think that's really typical. Can you imagine being poor and the only thing you have is those little power things around you that give any sense of dignity? So it's a strange way of looking at discipleship. So anyway, uh, another book, part three, you know, but uh, so I'm not supposed to be doing a lot of writing, so I can't write. That's why I blog. Uh, I, I hope you will. I mean, I hear you saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to write this up or whatever, but boy, we would benefit um, usually if you were able to somehow. Do, uh, do you have time for one more question? Okay. Uh, is there a healthy role for the suburban church in the uncool places? Um, y- yes. Um, I, I want to... S- search for something because I actually want to quote it rather than um, give you my version of it. If you just give me a second. Sure. Uh, Clarence Jordan, um, missionary to the uncool places of his time in, in, in Georgia, started farm, planted churches, started farms, things like this. Um, I've learned a little bit about uh, him over the course of the last year and he has a quote that I um, um, I think actually is, is a great, great quote. And um, so to answer the question about suburban churches, what roles can they play? Clarence Jordan said this, what the poor need is not charity, but capital. Not caseworkers, but coworkers. And what the rich need is a wise, honorable, and just way of de- divesting themselves of their overabundance. Um, It is really hard to tell rich people that they have overabundance. So it's really hard to tell suburban churches how they can play a part in this um, because they are paying for things that, that, um, you know, make their church work, you know. Uh, Suburban churches, more affluent, overabundance churches, um, need to see that this is a long-term partnership at developing um, churches in uncool uh, places like the Hill, in poor communities like the Hill. Um, we'll, we'll very rarely see someone go on to college and then seminary and then and have the long-term commitment to actually come back to a community like this mm-hmm. um, and become a leader. Um, that doesn't always happen. So if we want to see um, uh, minorities, especially in communities like this, rural communities, it would be white. If I was in a rural community, I'd be talking about white people. So don't think that this is just racism in disguise, anti-racism in disguise, or the uh, whatever the, the, the others, the counter. Um, it really is... Uh, um, if you're taking a look at the, the makeup of the churches and the and who's in leadership, there's no leadership coming from communities like this because it just won't happen. They don't have the capital. They don't have the, the ability. Well, as churches, this is this plays out the same. I can't send too many kids on mission trips or to a Christian camp or to a Christian Bible college or let alone seminary because there's no resource. I have to go and get them from people who have resources. Uh, healthy uh a healthy role of suburban churches simply is is that realizing that they have, at least in principle, a tithe to give away to uh, church planting. 
you and I both know um, the most effective way to win non-churched people, non-Christians to the Lord is actually through church planting. Yeah. The problem is, is that we are so counting on more affluent people to come to our churches. They have to be Christians already, you know, to, to even want to come and bring their money. You know, it just wasn't working. Um, so, um, you know, we, you know, I, I, I almost am ready to write an article about um, there is things in this world called the professional beggar is that they literally, that's their profession and they beg for a living. There's whole books on this whole societies made out of begging. And I keep on thinking, I just feel like that's what we are as a church. We're just a begging, a professional begging church, you know? And, um, um, it's, it's really tough to ask people who have money, who've worked hard to give to people from their perspective, should be living up to a different level of commitment towards jobs and life and stuff. Well, it's just a difficult environment, and it's hard to get people to step up and say it's worthwhile. We have a few churches, um, very few churches. One church gives um, uh, quite a bit. Our anchor church, obviously, is is a great supporter of what we're doing because it's their church. I mean, we're part of their congregation. Um, but I have not seen too many churches step up and say, well, we'll help you out here. Um, a third of my giving for my $44,000 comes from Florida, Georgia, and parts of the Carolinas. Not local. Interesting. And from individuals. So. That's All right. Thank, thank you to your son. Thank you to you. You're welcome. Thank you to you. Uh, brother, you've uh, shared a lot of wisdom. That's a lot of time and a lot of thinking. And uh, we probably exhausted you, but, well, probably not, actually. You've got a sharp mind, so. Uh, trust me. It is a 60, almost 62-year-old 62 mind that um, was filled up a long time ago and parts of it's just leaking out falling so god keep me alive long enough to do something here <laughs> uh, well you already are and i hope it keeps going for a long time all right thank you sirs thank you Chip. we'll talk to you again soon